0: Welcome to Freedom. It's good to see you here today. A lot of new faces, and uh, we just always want you to know uh, we're especially honored to have guests, and we know uh, when it's your first time in a church, uh, that always feels a little bit weird. You don't know where things are going to go. You're in a safe place with people who love Jesus and who always love to make new friends, so we want you to relax and enjoy the service that has been planned. If you've got your Bibles with you, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 3. We just began a new sermon series last week that is entitled not uh, WWJD, but WDJD. Uh, It's not uh, what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? And uh, what we are talking about through this series, we're going to spend a couple of months camped here, is just coming to terms with the fact that while it has been really uh, in vogue for, Maybe a couple of decades to say, well, what would Jesus do? I think Jesus would do this or Jesus would do that. That the truth of the matter is, a lot of times we don't have any earthly idea what Jesus would do because we've gotten so out of touch with the biblical Jesus. We've sort of made Jesus in our own image or, or we've imagined Jesus to be, that he must be like. Uh, if, if not like us, he must be like whoever that person was in our lives that maybe was sort of the most significant Christian figure for us. Maybe that was a dad or a pastor or or a mom or a grandmother or somebody that just to you was a picture of Christianity. And so we just always imagined Jesus would do whatever they would do. And sometimes they represented Jesus well and sometimes not so well. And so we wind up with these real distorted pictures of, of who Jesus really is. Are you with me? You know what I'm talking about. We and sometimes that'll really jack us up, won't it? You know, when when the person in your life who declared, you know, so clearly, you know, that they were they were staunchly Christian And yet, when their behavior didn't line up with what our faith is all about, and yet they always declared, you know, that they believe the Bible and they live by the Bible, and yet, you know, they come across as either so hypocritical or so harsh or so cruel and ugly, and yet... Because that's who we saw growing up, we equated that with this must be what Jesus was like. He was this, you know, real fist-pounding, angry person or, or this real soft, meek person that just, you know, sort of always gave in to everybody. So, you know, it's either the always gentle Jesus, meek and mild, or it's, it's always angry Jesus. You, you get where I'm coming from. We, we get all of these versions of Jesus that were expressed through somebody that's supposed to represent Jesus. And yet it's not so much tied to the real Jesus. And so what we're doing for a couple of months is just going back to the scriptures and saying, could we clear all that stuff away? And as best we can, could we strip away what we think we already know about Jesus and just with a clean slate go in and say, let's look at the scriptures and just say, what did Jesus actually say and what did he do and what can we learn from that? So that's what we're doing right now. And we're using John's gospel account. John, uh, his gospel isn't like the other three. It certainly reveals the same Jesus. But, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels, and they they really line up. What they write is very similar to one another. You read John's gospel account, and you you just feel like this guy's written from a whole other time frame because he writes in a different way. The other gospel writers really try and summarize everything that happened during the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry. John doesn't attempt to do that. John spends half of his time writing about what happened... During Holy Week, from Palm Sunday through Resurrection Sunday, almost half of his gospel account is about one week of Jesus' life. John just zooms in on a few moments in Jesus' life and really gives us a detailed picture of it. I mean, he spends five entire chapters just telling us what Jesus said to the disciples on the night of the Last Supper. Five chapters. That's the way he writes his whole gospel account. He'll just zoom in on a few stories... And he'll give you the more detailed version. He'll tell you a lot of what Jesus said and what the the other people said. And the other gospel writers tend to give you kind of the Reader's Digest version. It's not that one's better than the other, but they just help to fill in the blanks for us. We're staying in John because what we want to do is really try and get a picture of God with skin on him, which is what Jesus was, God in the flesh. And such a, a significant part of our faith, when you really boil it down, is how do you live out your faith in relationship with other people. Because ultimately, way more than anything else, way more than a moral code of conduct, Christian faith is about how we relate to others. It's about how you relate to God and how you relate to other people. Jesus said everything's summed up in those two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors, you love yourself. All of the law and commandments are summed up in those two things. It's all about how you do relationships. And so John gives us this close-up picture of, of how Jesus actually did relationships and interacted with close friends and strangers and acquaintances. And so it really helps us to fill in the blanks when we look at John's version. And so uh, last week we looked at a really interesting thing that John picked up on, where Jesus began his public ministry in terms of doing miracles. If you weren't here last Sunday, you may want to go back and listen, because uh, John chapter 2 is a really interesting way for Jesus to to kick this thing off. You may want to go back and review that for fun. Today we'll pick up in John chapter 3. Verse 1, and I'll just tell you, I realized this weekend, I probably could have given today's sermon a better title. I really struggled with, with a title to give this. It probably would have been better titled, What to Do or What to Say When... Dot, dot, dot. Have you ever just found yourself struggling with or afraid of those scenarios where you just don't know what to do or what to say back when... When somebody comes up and they sort of either attack your faith or question your faith or they put you on the defensive, what are you supposed to say then? Have you ever had those moments where a skeptic comes up to you and they, they ask some difficult or obscure question or, or they, they throw out some, you know, spiritual conundrum and say, well, what do you say to that, Christian? And a lot of us live afraid of that, don't we? It's like, you know, our default setting is, well, here's my pastor's phone number. Why don't you call him and ask him that question? We realize that never really does much good. I mean, that person's not looking for somebody's phone number. And so, you know, what do you say when somebody's sort of skeptical and they're real opinionated and they hit you up with a tough situation? Or the the account that we're going to look at today helps us to, to answer that question or get some idea of how we respond. But, you know, what do you say when somebody says to you, so are you one of those Christians who's real close-minded and thinks that Jesus is the only way to God, that everybody else goes to hell, that God's so exclusive that he would only have one way to get to him? Are you one of those people? What do you say when? What do you say when that's the kind of thing that's said to you to put you on the defensive? Or what do you say when people throw up the issues of the day in front of you? And say, so what is your response to the stuff that's always in the news today? What is your position uh, about, you know, gay marriage or about transgenderism? Well, what's your response to that? Are you one of those judgmental people who thinks that all those folks are going to hell? How are you supposed to respond to that kind of stuff? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Aren't you glad you came? (laughs) We get all that answered, we've done pretty well. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. If you didn't grow up in church and you're not familiar with the Pharisees, uh, these are the most religious people that you could ever imagine. There's really nobody in our culture that's easy to compare them to. They are just the super spiritual muckety-mucks who, they've always got the long robes and the long hair and the, the boxes with Scripture tied to their heads and their arms. It's an attempt to go, look at me, I am more spiritual than you are and so nicodemus is from that that crowd but more than that he is a member of the jewish ruling council this is as high as it gets as a jew short of being the one person who is the high priest so he is a member of the the highest rank of of jewish leaders and he came to jesus at night that's significant He's slipping in. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's even talking to Jesus. He, he's curious about having a relationship with Jesus, but he doesn't want a public relationship with Jesus. So he comes at night, and he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing if God were not with him. Okay, it's an interesting intro. He's slipping in at night, and he speaks very respectfully to Jesus. And by the way, this is not the only appearance of Nicodemus in the Scriptures. About halfway through John's Gospel, we're going to bump into Nicodemus again when the Jewish high court are trying to figure out what to do with Jesus and they've pretty much made up their minds to have him killed and Nicodemus speaks up at least half-heartedly to try and defend and protect Jesus. And by the time we get to the end of the Gospel, we find out Nicodemus has been converted. He's been born again, and he steps up, putting himself at great risk to lay claim to the body of Jesus and to appropriately prepare Jesus' body for burial. So we're getting Nicodemus on the front end of him ever coming to faith. So he comes in. He's really respectful. He calls Jesus Rabbi, and he essentially says, Look, we're trying to figure out what to do with you and what to think of you. And some of us have decided, I mean, you must be from God. I mean, how could you do the good things that you do, the miracles that you do? If you weren't on God's side and so on the one hand he comes from a pack of people who are plotting and scheming to have Jesus murdered and in the end they succeed. So there's a good reason to be very skeptical of him but at the same time he's like but I kind of think I might like you Jesus but I'm not sure and I'm here to figure out what to what to make of you and in reply Jesus just cuts to the chase in verse 3 and declares I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Do you almost feel like two different conversations got spliced together when you read that? I mean, it's like, Nicodemus is starting with the pleasantries. How you doing, Rabbi? I'm glad to meet you. I hear you're a pretty good guy from God. I'm telling you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Did I miss the first half of this conversation? Jesus is just cutting to the heart of the matter he's just gonna fast forward through the fluff of all the skepticism and questions that john has got just get right to the meat of the matter and and what's the meat of the matter the meat of the matter is this nicodemus you are as religious as a human being can be you're not just a jew the people who think we are god's favorite you are a Pharisee. They are not just the rule keepers. They are the rule makers. You are not just a Pharisee. You are a member of the Jewish ruling council. You are a member of their supreme court. You think that you are the highest tier of God's most beloved. And Jesus just cuts to the chase to say, I need for you to understand, while you think that you are high up in the kingdom of God, son, you will never see the kingdom of God unless you get born again. Ouch. Whew. Boy, forget the pleasantries. Jesus just says, let's frame this conversation. You think you are at the center of the circle. I want you to understand so we know how to begin this conversation. You are completely on the outside looking in. And you've spent your entire life thinking you are as inside as it gets. And you look at the rest of the world and go, the reason that you are not in is because of this sin. And you're not in because you break this rule. And you guys aren't even close to being in because of a list of things that you break. I wish you could be more like me. And Jesus says, let's be clear about you. You are on the outside looking in and you'll never get in unless you are born again. He's not being cruel. You realize it is not being cruel to say to a lost person, you're not okay. It's not condemnation to say there's something that has to happen. There's something that has to change for you to be okay and right with God. And all of us have to experience that. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. What he says there is not some mysterious thing. When he says born of the water, he's not talking about baptism. He's just talking about getting born. It's, a, it's just a euphemism for the whole thing of Water breaking and a baby being born from its mother. And he says, you're going to get into the kingdom of God, you've got to be born twice. You've got to be physically born into the world, and you've got to be spiritually born again. Two births necessary, nobody just ever gets born into the world, and at that moment born in the kingdom of God. You've got to be reborn. And he says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, and you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He just gives this wonderful analogy because Nicodemus is obviously so skeptical and say "How how can this be? You, you're speaking, you know, in riddles." And and he says, "Look, there are a lot of things that you can't see, and yet you absolutely believe in them." He says, "I'm talking to you about spiritual birth. How's how the Spirit of God has to." Make a person new, and he says, there are all kinds of things you can't see that you believe in. So the wind blows on you every day, and you accept that, and you talk about it, but you've never seen it. You just feel the effects of it. You know it's there. You can't say where it came from. You can't say where it's going, and yet you know it's real. And he said, so it is with the Spirit. Nicodemus asked, how can this be? Jesus said, you're Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. You see, up to that point in time, the sins of mankind had not been paid for. Even the righteous of the Old Testament are not in heaven. They're awaiting the passion of Christ, so that their sins would be paid for. He said, the only one that's been in heaven is the one who came from heaven. And oh, by the way, that's me. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That's Jesus' most um, frequently used title for himself. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, any Jew who heard this would know what he's talking about not all of us immediately recognize that but he's referencing a story in numbers where when the people of god were wandering in the wilderness and for the umpteenth time they rebelled against god and they're they're just griping and complaining like they always did we're sick of this food we wish we'd stayed in egypt we just don't have what we want out here we're miserable moses you're a lousy leader and we're pretty mad at god too and god for the, about the umpteenth time said i'm so sick of this i'm ready to wipe you all out and this time instead of just, you know, creating a hole in the ground for them to fall into or whatever. He, he said, I'm just going to send snakes among you as, as my judgment. Whew, man, that's like my worst nightmare. I've had that dream a lot of times. Snakes everywhere. Poisonous snakes. And so they're, they're biting the people of God. And they are people just dying right and left. And they realize, we caused this. We brought this on ourselves. This is judgment from God. And so, as he always does, God creates a way of deliverance. And so he says to Moses, to reaffirm Moses' leadership and provide a way of salvation for his people, he says, Moses, I want you to craft a bronze serpent, and I want you to put it on a staff, and I want you to raise it up in the middle of the camp. It's a huge camp. It's a couple of million people. And the people who've been bitten by the snakes, if they will come to within sight of this snake, which is a tangible way of saying, We believe that God is the one who can save us and that he's given us a way to be saved. If they'll get to the place that they can see this, they'll be saved. Now, this may sound like hocus-pocus to us, but this is a foreshadowing of what will be accomplished in Jesus. By the way, when you see, like, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield or anything related to the medical profession and it's a stick with a snake around it, it's a reference back to this story. He says, when when you raise up the... The snake, this bronze snake, and people realize, I've rebelled, I've sinned, and now I'm about to die because of it. I need to turn to God. Even as you're dying, crawl to the middle of the camp so you can see that thing raised up. And as you place your faith in God to save you, you know, looking at this thing, you'll be healed. And so that's a story that's firmly in their minds. And Jesus says of himself, just as that bronze snake had to be raised up so that dying people could crawl in there and, and put their hope in that, that they could be saved, Jesus said, so I've got to be raised up so that people can look to me and be saved. He's talking about the fact he's not going to be put on a stick. He's going to be put on a cross and raised up. And yet in his going to the cross and dying, as people see that and realize that was for me, that was for my sins, that was the price, the judgment against my sins being placed on him And I believe that he's made a way for me to be saved. And he's saying, that is how people are going to be saved. Verse 16, the most beloved verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Such good news. The irony is, we can pretty much all quote that verse, and so seldom do we quote the next verse, which is just as important. Verse 17, Jesus said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We're going to come back and visit that one in some detail. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Now, that is a mouthful. That is a lot of truth. And I know we don't have time to unpack all of that. But what I want to do in the next few minutes is just point out a response to the two questions we said we're going to ask every week for these next two months. First of all, what did Jesus actually say and do? Just without trying to add anything to it. Just what did he say and do? And then secondly, what in the world are we supposed to do with that? How do we respond to that? How do we apply that? So the first thing, just, okay, what did he say and do? Five things that I want us to just give our attention to, and I'm going to run through these pretty quickly. And the first one is this. And and as we do this, you'll see through this series, a lot of times this is not going to sound terribly profound. It's just acknowledging, all right, this is what he said, okay? For starters, Jesus spoke really frequently about the kingdom of God. Have you caught on to that yet? Have you ever just tried to count how many times Jesus talked about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in the scriptures? And by the way, those two uh, phrases are the same. They're interchangeable. There's no difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talked about this all the time. In fact, sometimes you get the feeling there's never anything Jesus wanted to talk about but the kingdom of God, um, In Matthew's account, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Or the kingdom of God is at hand. Every time he got up to preach, this is the message. It's the message of the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus loved to talk in parables. You ever notice how Jesus led into virtually every parable he ever told? For the kingdom of God is alike. And then he tells a story. The kingdom of God is like a farmer who went out to sow seeds and da, da 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 da. The kingdom of God is like a man who walked through a field and he came upon great treasure. The kingdom of God is like, and he just dozens of times, he's always talking about the kingdom of God. Nicodemus comes up and says, Rabbi, we see the things that you're doing. You must be from God. Jesus says, You don't get in the kingdom of God unless you get born again. Do you have another sermon? Do you have another message? It's always about the kingdom of God. Second thing we notice is Jesus said that everyone is born in need of spiritual rebirth. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It does not matter what family you were born into. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're Gentile. You are not born in this world being a part of the kingdom of God, you must be spiritually born again. Third thing, Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah, the Savior, and the Son of God. Now you may say, I just read the same passage and I didn't get all of that out of it. I assure you, any Jew involved in this conversation or reading an account of this conversation got all of that out of it. When Jesus declared himself to be the son of man, the Jews were so familiar with the Old Testament, they would immediately pick up on the fact that this is the designation for the Messiah that Daniel used. The Son of Man is this all-powerful divine figure that would come from heaven to earth and be worshipped. And he would possess all power. He clearly, the Son of Man, is divine. He is declaring himself to be the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that the Jews had been waiting for centuries to come. He is declaring himself to be the Son of God. He gave his one and only Son, And he is declaring that everyone who places their faith in me will have eternal life. He is announcing, I am the Savior of the world. All of that. Fourth, Jesus said that faith in him is necessary to have eternal life. It's unequivocal. Unequivocal for how he puts it. Everyone who believes in in him, he's doing the third person thing, he's talking about himself, will have eternal life. It's the answer to the question, what does it take for a person to be saved? What does it take to get in the kingdom of God? You must place your faith in the Son of God, in Jesus of Nazareth. And then the fifth thing, you really get this in the last part of what he said, Jesus declares that he did not come to condemn people, but to save sinful people. The Son, of, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Alright, are we in agreement that all five of those things were said or happened in that? This is essentially the core of what he said. Now what are we supposed to do with that? Why is that significant? And what do we do with that? Well, the first thing I'll, I'll say kind of in backing up and unpacking these is that we've got to realize that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, must define our worldview and be at the center of what we're constantly thinking about and frame, be our frame of reference for how we look at and think about and really talk about everything. Jesus is always going back to the kingdom of God. When he sent his followers out two by two, whether it was the 72 or the 12, he sent them out To heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to declare the message of the kingdom of God. As you read through the Gospels, there are several times that it just sums up what was the ministry of Jesus and what was the ministry that Jesus sent his followers to do. It's always those three things. Heal the sick, cast out demons, and declare the message of the kingdom of God. Which just always begs some wonderful questions to me. Why is it, I mean I've grown up in church as much as anybody could be. If a Gentile could be a Pharisee, I was a Pharisee. I mean, I I was just as churched as it got. But many years into my church and Christian experience, I mean, one thing we got right is we studied the Bible. At a personal level, at a church level, we were in the Bible. But if you had asked me many years into my Christian experience, tell me about the kingdom of God. Tell me something about the ministry of healing the sick or the ministry of casting out demons, on all three, you'd have pretty much gotten the big, uh, I'm not sure. I can tell you the Roman road. But the kingdom of God, healing the sick and casting out demons, I'm not sure about those. How can that be? How can that possibly be that followers of Jesus believers in the Bible who stay centered on the Gospels more than anything else. You can't read two pages of the Gospels without bumping into heal the sick, cast out demons, declare the message of the kingdom of God, and you bring up those three subjects. And most Christians, even in the Bible Belt, are kind of like, well, if you're sick, we'll put you on the prayer list and bring you a casserole. If you've got a demon, we'll send you to the assemblies of God. We've heard they can do something about that. And as for the kingdom of God, here's the pastor's phone number. I mean, what? Something's broken, isn't it? We've got to get back to the basics. Jesus, when he sent his followers out, he said, when you do talk, and don't just let this be a matter of talk. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but a demonstration of power is what Paul said. There better be power to heal the sick and to cast out demons when you go out. But your message better be the message of the kingdom of God. What is the message of the kingdom of God? Well, a couple of things sum that up. First of all, let's just be clear on how we define the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is simply this. It is the rule and reign of God in the hearts and lives of men and women. Simply put, it is that. The kingdom of God, that, that's not complex. In fact, that, that'll sort of underwhelm you, will it? The kingdom of God is the freely embraced rule and reign of God in the lives of men and women, boys and girls. We're tempted to just go, well, the kingdom of God's everything. I mean, God's the ruler of everything. Everything is the kingdom of God. No, it's not. God is the ruler of everything, but the kingdom of God has not come everywhere. The kingdom of God only is ushered in where people freely submit to the rule and reign of God. You don't do that, you're not in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God God has all these wonderful realities that come with it. You see, in the kingdom of God, there is justice. It's not just justice for people who have money and power. There's justice for everybody. Everybody gets justice in the kingdom of God injustice against the weak, injustice against women, injustice against the disabled. All of that is blown up in the kingdom of God. There is justice for all in the kingdom of God. The hungry are fed in the kingdom of God. The poor are cared for in the kingdom of God. Oh, we could go, this isn't even part of the sermon, but we could go a long way down that road. In, in the kingdom of God, there is compassion, there is truth in the kingdom of God. Okay, there's a lot of stuff in the kingdom of God, but it's, things are as they should be in the kingdom of God. But you don't get in the kingdom of God until you freely submit to the rule and reign of God in your life. The other half of what we have to say in terms of understanding everything in life with the kingdom of God being a frame of reference is that we just understand this. Everything in the universe is a part of a gigantic conflict that predates human history. It is the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And everything in creation is a part of one of those kingdoms. And there is a giant wall separating the two kingdoms. Both of those kingdoms have a king. The one true God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the God, one God who eternally exists as three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the king who rules over the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. There is another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, its ruler is the prince of this world. His name is Lucifer. He has great power and authority, and he has great knowledge. These two kingdoms are always in conflict. We know who the winner is going to be in this conflict, but all the skirmishes are far from done. Everyone, every human being made in the image of God, loved by God, every one of us are born outside the kingdom of God. You see, this is a fundamental part of our worldview that we must understand. Everybody is born outside the kingdom of God. Doesn't mean God didn't love you, but you were not in his kingdom. That puts you in a terribly perilous, precarious situation. Because being outside the kingdom of God meant that Lucifer and all of his minions had dangerous levels of access and influence in our lives. And they never mean to bring good to to the lives of the people in their kingdom. They sow sickness, fear, abuse, pain and tyranny in the lives of all of the people in their kingdom. Now the thing that people tragically misunderstand is, there is a great wall between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And what people often misunderstand is they think that God built that wall. He didn't. We did. You and I did. We built every brick of that wall because the wall that separates the two is our sin. The sin of humanity puts a wall between every one of us and God when we're born, and we've all added to that wall, haven't we? You, you want to say, well, what is it that potentially sends me to hell? Is it the, the sin of, of Adam and, and of humanity, or is it my own personal sin? And the answer is yes. All of the above. It's that big wall that keeps me from being in the kingdom of God. I didn't create all of that wall, but I've made a big contribution to it. I added a lot of bricks to it with every time that I've been rebellious, every time that I've been selfish, every time that I've been cruel and and hurtful, I've been adding bricks to that wall that separates people from God and His kingdom. The good news is God has made a way to pass from one kingdom to the other. When he sent Jesus into the world, I'll tell you who knew fully what was going on, Lucifer knew. He knew that Jesus, with his coming, was putting the ultimate kung fu karate kick on that wall of separation. He was making a hole, a breach in that wall, so that for the first time in history, men and women, boys and girls, could pass from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. God's not ever been in the business of keeping people out of the kingdom. God has all been, always been in the business of making a way so that people could pass from where they were born into where they were meant to be born again. That's good news. So the message of the kingdom of God is our fundamental worldview that informs every conversation. So you see, Jesus isn't being... Weird or out in left field when nicodemus comes in and he's essentially going i'm just still trying to make up my mind what to do with you rabbi I mean you seem to be a good guy, but you're not one of us But you know you must be from god So i'm here to sort of just form more of an opinion about you and jesus says let's get to the heart of the matter There is a kingdom of god. There is a kingdom of darkness Nicodemus you were in one of those kingdoms and it ain't the kingdom of god and there's only one way for you to get there You got to be born again He knows he's got a limited amount of time. He's not going to waste any words, and he does not. Which brings us to the next truth. We cannot join God's kingdom and family unless we are born again. John 3, 5, Jesus says, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. John opens his gospel account with the words uh, that Charlie read as the call to worship today. The only way that you get into the kingdom of God is you become a part of the family of God. It's just part of this incredible message of the gospel. God isn't making you his slave. He's not just making you a citizen of his country or his kingdom. He's making you a part of his family. John one twelve. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave them the right to do what? To become the children of God. You see, the The kingdom of God and all of the wonderful things that it entails. It was made for the family of God, for the children of God. And he made you to be a part of his family. He made you not to be a servant of his family, but to be one of his own children. I don't know what you've had said to you and done to you throughout life that has shaped your opinion of yourself or what God must think of you. But can we be completely clear about this? The The word of God is completely clear. God made you to be his son or daughter. And he has gone to extraordinary lengths to make it possible for you to belong to his family. Now you have to be born again to get there. Because when you were physically born, you were born on the wrong side of the wall. But Jesus has made a way for you to... And and, and I mean in much the same way that when you were formed, you were formed in a dark place, weren't you? I don't remember that very well, but, but it was a dark place. You were in the womb. And you were experiencing life, but it was a very limited experience. A very limited and dark and distorted experience. What you heard and what you saw was just, just so dark and distorted. And you had to pass through this sort of traumatic experience to suddenly have real life revealed to you. And suddenly you were fully alive. That becomes for us a picture, an illustration of what Jesus is saying. You've lived your life in a place that not unlike the womb may have become very comfortable for you. It's what was familiar. But it was a dark place. It was your place, but it was a dark place. And you can spend the rest of your life there, but if you do, you'll miss out on the life that really is life. I mean, life may have been hard for you, but would you have wanted to spend the last however many years in your mama's womb? I don't know of anybody who wanted to sign up for that. I mean, life may have been hard, but I'd rather be out in the world experiencing life than have lived for the last 49 years in the womb. Jesus is helping us understand to live life outside of the family of God is like living in the darkness of the womb. Everything's distorted. Everything's dark. The Spirit of God wants to, to bring you forth to let you experience life for the first time. And I'm telling you, you have to experience it for what I'm saying to fully make sense. But suddenly the world that you're living in is changed. It's different. You're changed. Suddenly you see things in a different light. It's like you've passed from the darkness of the womb into the world for the very first time. And suddenly you're free to love people and to be loved and to love yourself and to know that you're accepted by God and for the first time you can feel truly alive. It's like a baby coming in the world. Can't join God's kingdom and family unless we're born again. And thirdly, Jesus is the only way to God and salvation. Jesus said, people who believe in God's Son are not judged guilty, but people who do not believe are already judged because They have believed in God's only Son. One of the fundamental questions that skeptics will ask us in some shape or form, and that the media wants to ask of Christianity is, so, do you believe that God is going to reject everyone who doesn't accept His Son, Jesus? Jesus frames all this in a very different way. He says, what you don't understand is, everybody already is on the wrong side of the wall. They already stand... Judged. They they are almost like a judge unto themselves. They're already on the wrong side. It's not that God is going, well, I'm not happy with how you're living in my kingdom, so, bonk, I'm kicking you out. Saying, no, that's not the case. You were always on the wrong side of the wall. God is the one who has been working throughout history to penetrate this wall so that you could be brought in. And yes, a part of the message is, if you're not willing to be brought in... That you'll die separated from God. And all of the terrible stuff that goes with that is true, but it's not a matter of God rejecting you. It's us rejecting all that God has done throughout history to make a way to bring us in. Isn't that a radically different message? And we're not being closed-minded to say Jesus is the only way in. It's just the truth of the matter. There's no one else in history who's been able to breach that wall. Only the Son of God could do this with His sinless life, with His sacrificial death, with the shedding of His blood and the laying down of His life, where He literally on the cross and as He was being scourged, He bore the pain and the weight and the punishment of my sins and yours. And I don't care what other leader we point to and go, what a great leader. They did not bear the weight of your sins. And if they did, it didn't work out. And the evidence of that is when they died, they rotted. And they stayed dead. There's only one that when he declared that he was dying for us, and then he died, that he rose back up and you couldn't keep him in the grave. The evidence that he had succeeded in breaching the wall and making a way, becoming the way. So let me suggest this. I started off by saying, this is kind of a message on what do you do when? What do you say when? When somebody is a skeptic and they're asking questions, and and here's the ones that, that freak us out the most. It's the people that we feel like they know more than we know. When I talk to Christians, it's like that's the ultimate freak-out moment. I'm just afraid somebody's going to ask me a question I don't know the answer to. You want to tell you what to do in that moment? Say, I don't know. It's a good response. You're not expected to be the encyclopedia of knowledge of everything. It's okay to say, I don't know. But when somebody's asking you some long-headed spiritual religious question, I mean, they love to ask like retarded stuff about the the law. When they're trying to go to these obscure places... Here's what you do 100% of the time. Do like Jesus did. You immediately run back to the heart of the matter. And you know what the heart of the matter is for us? It's Jesus. You always reframe the conversation back to Jesus. When they're saying, "Do you really believe the world's only 7,000 years old?" I mean, "How can you with carbon-14 dating and blah, 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 how, how can you possibly believe this?" Well, you know, I've got an opinion about those things. But that's probably not what we ought to be talking about today. I've got a question for you. Who do you understand Jesus to be? Well, actually, I've got a question about the law. Well, we can talk about that later. But I'd just love to know who you understand Jesus to be. You know, it's funny. I've asked a lot of people this question. I've asked a lot of major skeptics this question. And I have yet to run into the person. I'm sure there's somebody out there. I just hadn't bumped into him. Who says... Oh, He's just a scoundrel. He's a cheat. He's a liar. He's a bum. Everybody likes Jesus. The biggest skeptics like Jesus, it seems. Oh, well, Jesus, I mean, he was certainly a great moral individual. He was a great teacher. He was, he was, he was this. He was, you know, he was a great rabbi. He's essentially, they're saying what Nicodemus was saying. Well, that's awesome. So you hold Jesus in high regard. Yes, I mean, he's certainly a very good individual that is very interesting. Then what do you make of the teachings of Jesus? Well, I'm, you know, they're, they're good teachings. Yes, they are. Have you ever read the teachings of Jesus? I mean, that's just the path I take them down. Who do you understand Jesus to be? What do you do with the teachings of Jesus? Have you read the teachings of Jesus? It's amazing to me how many people who have rejected the Bible haven't read it first. I'm not saying this to talk down. Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not suggesting that we should be ugly Or cruel to people who are skeptical. Jesus died for skeptics. Jesus loves skeptics. And in asking these questions, what are we doing? We're trying to recenter the conversation on who and what can change them. Because part of what we're trying to help them understand is, Jesus is one of three things. If you believe that Jesus is a great teacher and a great man, you've got to come to one of three conclusions. Jesus is either the biggest liar that's ever walked on the face of the earth, Or he is an absolute lunatic, as C.S. Lewis would say, on the order of a poached egg. That's how Lewis put it. Or he is the Lord of all the earth. He's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord of all the earth. Because he said repeatedly that he was the Son of Man, that he was the Son of God, that he was the Savior of the world, that he was the only way to get to God. Now, he is either a flat-out liar or he's a lunatic who's just, you know, there are all kinds of crazy people who think they're divine, who think that they're the Messiah. He's either that kind of nutcase or he's a sham or he's who he said he is. There's no other alternative. There are only three options. So you can't logically say, well, he's just a great teacher. If he's a great teacher, then he is the Son of God because that great, great teachers don't run around lying about who they are and what they've come to do. And Jesus is very clear. That he's the Savior of the world and the only way to get to God. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. The only way to the Father is through me. In John 10, Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. Those who come in through me will be saved. The point he's making is I'm the one who breached the wall. The only way to get through that wall is through me. I am literally the gate. You place your faith in me, you have a relationship with me, and you pass through into life doesn't leave much wiggle room, does it? He doesn't say asterisk at the end, you know. Unless, of course, you want to use Muhammad or some other way. Buddha's not going to get you there. Muhammad's not going to get you there. Jesus said, I am the only way. A fourth thing that's worth noting in what Jesus said, though, is that faith in Jesus is going to lead to both salvation and changed behavior. I have an old friend who used to often say, one of the, you know, there are a lot of wonderful things about living in the South and in the Bible Belt. But one downside is a lot of us got inoculated to the gospel like you get inoculated to a disease. You know, we would give you just enough of the the virus so that you can't ever catch the real thing. You'd just be inoculated to it. A lot of us kind of did Christian faith that way. Got just enough of it. We can talk the talk. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I know about him. We went to Sunday school, died on the cross, shed his blood. Raised my hand during vacation Bible school on Thursday on decision day. Got dunked. Yes, glory. Lived like a pagan all week long. I don't ever think about God, but I got dunked when I was seven. That's not Christian faith. Jesus is abundantly clear. Faith in him doesn't just get you in the kingdom of God. It gradually transform you transforms you so that you look more and more like a son or a daughter of God. And that translates very simply this way. No change means no Jesus. Some of us, and there's no condemnation of what I'm saying, just we've got to be honest with each other. Some of us have been led to a false confidence in a religious experience where we prayed a prayer and a lot of people cheered for us and and we felt a, a spiritual buzz because of that. Maybe we even got dunked over that. Maybe got involved in church for a while. But have lived decades of our lives just living by our own wits, our own desires, living on our own you know, terms and by our own rules with little or no regard for God. That is not Christian faith. And I'm not talking down to anybody in saying that. Christian faith leads to changed behavior. And this is not a recipe or a formula that says faith in Jesus plus good works equals a ticket to heaven. No. What we are saying is what James says. True faith is always manifest through changed behavior. Faith without works is dead. It's not faith plus works. It's faith that works. It's faith that goes to work and says, I can't just live the way I am. I can't just be the way that I am. Jesus has has claimed me. He's bought me with his blood. And he sent his spirit to live in me to change me. And so if I don't cooperate with that at some points along the way, then I didn't get it. Real faith leads to real change. And then a fifth and final thing, and this is a doozy. Jesus makes it clear that our message must be one of hope and love rather than condemnation. Is there anything that the 21st century church needs more than this? It must be a message of hope and love that we communicate instead of a wagging finger and a voice of judgment, condemnation. I love how Peterson in the message translates verse 17. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Somebody say amen. Goodness gracious What good news. And yet it seems in every generation that the the Christians or the religious crowd pick their handful of issues to just rail against. In the first century, in Jesus' time, oh, they had it. The religious leaders, you know what topped the list? Breaking the Sabbath rules. Jesus stayed in trouble all the time. Because he was always ministering seven days a week. He'd do the impossible. He'd heal somebody who'd been crippled for decades. Oh, he did it on Sunday. Can you believe what that new teacher did? did it on a Sunday. Are you kidding me? The dude's been crippled for decades? Jesus raises him up, changes his life. and Oh, but you broke the rules. Shame, shame, shame. No good Christian would do that. Got to keep the Sabbath rules. I mean, it was all about the diet, and it was all about obeying the Sabbath. They, they had their little, they had hundreds of rules, but they had their little select list of three or four things that they really judged everybody by. Every generation does that. Now, I grew up in the '70s, born in the '60s, grew up in the '70s, and we had our stuff. We had our our pet stuff that we judged people by. It may have been a little bit different in your circle, but I mean, some of the things that were just the big, we're going to rail against you was, you know, we we had a major problem with, you know, anybody who's been divorced, anybody who drinks, and if you had an abortion, we will give you a fast ticket to hell. You know, it's just uh, that, that we we're just so anti-abortion, and lest anybody's getting puckered up over me talking about these issues today, I'm not suggesting that these things are right or good, I'm saying it's a problem when we cherry pick our little pet sin list of things that we haven't personally done so that we feel better about ourselves and we can judge the daylights out of you and in our mind send you to hell. We can't actually send you to hell. We're just going to make it feel like hell on earth for you while you're here. We had, you know, you you probably have your own list of what, what you heard people rail against. Rock and roll, you know, when we were growing up. Drinking, drugs, rock and roll, all that, you know, the devil's music. Well, here we are. We're so much more advanced today, aren't we? We all listen to rock and roll, so we're so advanced, you know. But we still got our lists. The list just changes. It just evolves. You may or may not agree with me, but I would suggest that there are three groups that come to mind for me that whether we think... That collectively as a church we take a rotten stand against or not, I think we do take a rotten stance against. And if they're not the top three, they're going to be near the top. And they are people who are gay or lesbian, who struggle with transgender identity issues. And the third one's the one that you're going to probably be really surprised I'm adding to this list, but that is people who are illegal aliens. Now, we don't come to church and rail against these people. No, we just do it online and face-to-face. You need to run them all out of here. And as for these other two groups, what is wrong with them? But just it goes. Well, we don't talk about it that way in church. We just do it in private. We do it in our little small conversations. Now, don't get off track here. I'm not suggesting that we ever call wrong right. It's never what we're saying. What we're saying is, Jesus declared, I did not come into the world to point an accusing finger, but to save the world. And that radically changes your message. I can't think of three groups of people that would feel more uncomfortable in most Bible Belt churches than the three that I just named. People who struggle with same-sex attraction. People who feel like they are a different gender than what they were born. And people who broke the law to get in this country. And because it's being talked about in the news constantly, we've all chosen a position on this. I'm not here to lobby some political position. I'm not in favor of illegal immigration. What I'm saying to you is, we want to get back to what did Jesus say and do and what would Jesus say and do. I'm absolutely convinced of of this about Jesus. Jesus. He did not rail against these kinds of issues. He did not rail against these kinds of people. In fact, I can only find in the Gospels one kind of person that Jesus ever railed against. That was hypocritical people of faith. Judgmental people of faith. Legalistic people of faith. And oh, he didn't pull any punches with them. Over and over he would say, Woe to you, you whitewashed tombs! On the outside, you're so polished and clean, and on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. That's what he said to religious people. But to people who were broken and tangled up in sin, they were having affairs and committing adultery and getting drunk, to them, he said, Yeah, I'll go to your party. I'll be your friend. I'd love to have dinner with you. Who is this guy? He certainly wasn't the chairman of deacons at my church. Our message has to change. Not the message of what's right and what's wrong. That's not that complicated most of the time. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. We're we're all clear on that. What we can't get clear on is how to help broken people, of which we are all part of that crowd, to live lives that line up increasingly with the truth. Because we've all got these drives to do stuff that doesn't line up with the truth. And we all struggle with different things. With some, it's sexual acting out. With some, it's drinking and carousing. With some, it's eating too much. With some, it's pride. With some, it's a desire to own everything in the world. I mean, we're all struggling with something. And the the net result of that can't be, well, I won't talk about your sin and you don't talk about mine. That's not the point. We all have to address our sin issues. We've got to pull each other together and help each other move forward and make progress. We don't do that by pretending that nobody's sinning. But we don't get there by judging one another's sin. And by collectively saying, well, I'll tell you what, at our church, we take a stand against the bad stuff. We keep them homosexuals out there where they belong. Bunch of transgender freaks. I will guarantee you Jesus wouldn't say that. I'll guarantee you he would not. I am quite confident that Jesus would stop to consider how painful life must be if something inside you, something beyond what you can control, keeps telling you that you're something that your body physically doesn't agree with. I can't personally identify with that, but I've loved people who have wrestled with that at a level but I feel their pain and I understand they didn't choose to struggle with that any more than I choose to struggle with the things that are fundamental to my personality. And because we're not strong enough to fix what's broken in us, we needed a Savior to die for all of our issues. Someone has rightly said, people will only remember a little bit of what you say, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And that truth needs to permeate how we relate to and interact with people with all kinds of brokenness. You may not personally identify with their struggle, but you can identify with the fact that they struggle and that you struggle and I struggle. And at that point, we share something massive in common. We are broken people in need of a savior and in need of love and acceptance the media are constantly inviting us to take the bait and take a stand on illegal immigration. That's just another example. And we all have seemingly you know, taken our position. And I don't have the political solution. Nobody does, by the way. I don't think anybody in Washington, Montgomery, or Baldwin County has the answer to solve the problem. It's a massive problem. So could I suggest to you this? Quit worrying about the national level problem of tens of millions of people who are here illegally. And just ask yourself this question, what would you feel like, not is this right or wrong, what would you feel like if you and your family came from a situation that was so desperate, so dangerous, so poverty stricken that you would risk leaving it all behind, breaking the law? And maybe having to be separated from your family to go to a place to find some measure of hope. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it okay. But if we can stop to consider the level of pain and desperation that would lead people to go to these places, maybe we could at least respond with some compassion. And that's not suggesting a political solution. I don't know the political solution. Here's the bottom line. We don't need a political solution so much as we need a personal solution. We need people like you and me to care. To care enough to get involved in people's lives. Friends, this isn't just a Washington, uh, an issue in Washington or down in Miami or in Southern California. This is an issue in Baldwin County. This is an issue in Fairhope. I could load you up with me today and within about 60 seconds take you to some places where this issue lives in Fairhope. And at some point, we've got to stop taking political stands and religious stances and decide to do what Jesus would do and Jesus would get involved. I mean, that's the striking thing about Jesus. He didn't come to take a stand on all these different things. When you look at Jesus' ministry, Jesus interacted with the people who showed up in his path just got involved and sought to make a difference that would help them and along the way help them to understand I've come to bring you from darkness into light, to bring you into the family of God, and through me you can have that. And we're called to do the same. We're empowered to do the same. Don't you want that? Don't you want that personally? And don't you you want to be a messenger of that kind of good news? It's okay to answer back. Say yes or uh uh-huh if you do. I do. I want to be a bearer of that message. Would you join me as we go to God together in prayer right now? Father, we give you thanks today that you brought good news. And that you entrust us with good news. News of hope and forgiveness. God, I know that the truth is, some of us here today need to receive the good news that there are some in the room, some watching and listening online, who need to be born again. I pray that you would just unleash the power of your Holy Spirit first of all to make that clear. Maybe some of us have just had religious experiences, but we've never experienced life change. God, would you right now speak truth in us and would you birth faith in us? If today... You just need simply to be born again, forget all the other stuff. You just need to enter into life and forgiveness. I'm not going to ask you to go through a bunch of gyrations. I'm going to ask you to just begin with a simple prayer in your heart. If that's what you want to do, would you just pray within your heart? God hears your heart. Would you just say this? Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your life. I need you to change me I need you to forgive and save me I confess my sin and all the rottenness of my life and I trust you today to give me a clean slate and a fresh start God I pray for those who have just said yes to your offer of forgiveness that you would seal this moment with your Holy Spirit and with the joy of knowing that they've been made new And I pray that you give them the confidence to do more than Nicodemus did when he slipped in by night. I pray that you give them the confidence in the light to say, I just trusted Jesus. God, I know there are many others of us who have received that forgiveness and salvation, but we have not lived a message of hope and forgiveness and love. And I pray today that you would convict us and change us. If today you just, as a a point of confession, would say, I need to change and become a messenger of hope, of forgiveness, and of love. And that's just my prayer today. I want God to make me that kind of messenger of love and forgiveness. Would you just raise your hand as a declaration of that today? I want to be a messenger of hope and forgiveness, God, for every hand raised around this room. Fill our hearts with a a love for others that's beyond our capacity. And right now, would you put in, in our hearts and on our minds the faces and the names of people that we can reach out to, that we can share good news with, that we can tangibly show the love of God to. God, make us your conduit to bring love, hope, and help to broken, hurting people. We pray this with grateful hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.